everybody, it's Pete. It's April. I hope, after everything we've been through, that you are someplace you can walk outside, fill your lungs with clean air, and breathe deep. If we ever needed a spring full of new life, it is right now. So let's take advantage of it by reveling in it and letting ourselves grow through that nourishment. Journalist and author Lynn McTaggart joins Dodge today to talk about her work. She's written seven best-selling books, and the scope of that work makes it practically interview malpractice to attempt to cover it in one conversation. They start by approaching her work chronicling the work of scientists and researchers in the field of consciousness and her own observations and the power of intention. Speaking personally here, there is a lot I don't understand in this space, and frankly, hearing much of it causes my walls to come right up. But as I've learned from Dodge time and again, just because I don't understand a thing, just because it doesn't fit into the worldview of my collected experience, doesn't mean I should stop asking questions. There are so, so many questions to be asked. Ultimately, this is a conversation anchored in hope. And here at The Change Paradox, we want to provide a platform for more hopeful conversations. We can't think of a better way to continue a hopeful investigation than with this one, with Lynn McTaggart and Dodge Ray. Well, welcome, Lynn McTaggart. So glad to have you here. Thank you, Dodge. It's so great to be with you. At this point where we find you in your career, you're an international best-selling author writing about science and spirituality. And I know you've got a whole extra world that you work in around health and stuff, but I thought maybe we'd focus primarily today on your latest book, The Power of Eight, and really in this, the, the authoring part of your career, which is, you know, in that place where spirituality and science touch. Um, but before we even jump into that, tell me a little bit about what got you into this? Like, what started this wild ride that you thought, you know, I got to write a book about that? The whole thing started in the mid-90s. Um, I am the editor, co-editor of a publication called What Doctors Don't Tell You, which my husband and I launched as a newsletter in 1990. And the whole purpose of that newsletter, now an international magazine, is to look at what works and what doesn't work in conventional and alternative medicine, mainly holistic medicine. But back in that time and ever since, we got hold of a lot of data by studying medical literature. And it was in the course of doing that work and trying to find out whether treatments work or not, that I kept coming across very good studies of things like spiritual healing and acupuncture, and homeopathy. And this got me thinking, particularly about spiritual healing. You know, if you could have a thought and send it to someone else and make them better, that completely undermines everything we think about how the world works and how we work. And so the journalist in me wanted to find out why. And 
I come from a background as an investigative reporter. You know, I started out my career in my 20s doing things like busting baby selling rings with, you know, hidden microphones taped on me and things like that. You know, I posed as an unwed mother and found this international baby selling ring. And, uh, and that was the subject of my first book. So, you know, that kind of skeptical detailed inquiry has never left me. That's probably the essence of who I am. So I wanted to find out, and I thought I would find something like human energy fields. And I would talk to a couple of frontier scientists. They'd tell me what it was, I'd write it up, and that would be that. But it wasn't like that at all. I discovered among these scientists working at prestigious universities and studying consciousness research, that each of them had found a tiny piece of an entire puzzle that compounded into a full and extraordinary and paradigm-busting view of the world. The other thing about what they discovered is, you know, it was hard for them to communicate it because scientists talk in math. They talk in code. So I suddenly realized, and they don't like to venture outside of their own experimental data. So I realized very quickly that I was going to have to do that. So I put that together, the field, that became the book, The Field, but there was unfinished business. A lot of studies they did demonstrated that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. So you know, being ever the doubting Thomas, the skeptic, I wanted to find out, well, what are they talking about here? You know, there was a lot about the secret, the law of attraction back in the early 2000s after the field was published. And I wanted to see how far we could take this. You know, are we talking about flying up buildings with our thoughts? Are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? What are we talking about here? And that became the intention experiment. That became the power of eight, and that became how I essentially got hijacked into this work four books later. <laughs> it's really fun to read The Power of Eight because you tell this like a story. It's quite a page turner of uh, of somebody who throughout is sounding not just surprised, but almost reluctant, like, oh my goodness, this sounds entirely too woo-woo, but I have to follow this lead too. Could this really be happening? It's it's really fun. But let's back up for a minute to the attention experiment. That's where I came to your your work initially. That was the first of your books I read. And it's a remarkable page-turner in itself that shares lots of studies demonstrating this incredible idea you just mentioned, that thoughts are not a private phenomenon to oneself that thoughts in a weird way are things they have a strange effect on our environment and you lay out chapter after chapter of of evidence that our environment in fact is responding to our thinking can you share some of those studies like some of them are just sort of forehead slapping you've got to be kidding me but there they are sure Cleve baxter was a noted polygraph specialist and he was sitting in his office one night and he was pretty bored. He used to work late at night when the rest of the team had left to get things done. So, and he had perfected, a, you know, methods of polygraph um, equipment that were, were new at the time. We're talking about the 1960s. So he's bored. He's sitting there. And at that point, a polygraph was, you know, was equipment that would attach to one of your fingers 
and it would be attached to a pen with paper and it would create a wavy line. And if you were telling the truth, it would have, you know, a, 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 a fairly straight line. And then if, because it was measuring your sympathetic nervous system activity mm-hmm. on your finger. And if, you know, you said, well, it wasn't you who shot the gun that killed Joe Smith and you were lying, it would start going, you know, up and down this giant sine wave curve. And so he's, he attaches this plant to his polygraph equipment and just wants to see well, what would happen. Does it, does it react when I water it, for instance? So he did. And the plant got a readout on his equipment that would be the equivalent to a person being bored. So he goes, maybe I have to do something more, you know, more significant to it. Something that involves danger. So he goes and he runs into the other room and he grabs matches and he thinks about grabbing, you know, grabbing a match and causing it harm. When he goes back to the polygraph equipment, well, first of all, he starts lighting the match, et cetera. And the the equipment is going crazy in this giant sine wave curve. And he looks at it afterward and looks at it compared to the time he thought about harming the plant. And that's when the plant went crazy. Not when he lit a, a match under its leaf. It was when he was thinking about first getting the match. And, you know, the plant's going crazy, the plant's going crazy. And then he puts the match away and he stops and the plant comes down again. And so Baxter goes to himself, what was that? And for many decades after that, he started studying what he called primary perception, which was the ability of plants and other living organisms that we think are non-sentient, like eggs and bacteria, to register the comings and goings and activities of human beings. You know, when he poured hot water down um, a sink with a lot of bacteria in it and had uh, his equipment hooked up to other things like eggs or other bacteria, they would register. That was pretty extraordinary. Another great experiment I loved, demonstrating how our thoughts, how we're leaky buckets and our thoughts or trespassers affecting other people and things um, was a thing called the Love Study, run by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where they had they wanted to see if sending healing thoughts to a member of a couple with cancer would have any effect on the on the recipient. So they got hold of a batch of couples, one of whom in each couple had cancer. And they, in each experiment done with a set, you know, one couple, they would put the ill partner in one room with a camera on him or her and hooked up to all kinds of physiological equipment. The uh, sender, the well partner, would be in a totally other building in another room with a monitor. And every so often, um, the monitor would flash up a picture of his partner. And by the way, the sender was also hooked up to all this physiological equipment. So when the picture flashed up of the ill partner, that was the signal for the sender to send healing intention to his or her partner. They did that. And after that, 
they studied all of this physiological equipment and they found that at the time the person said healing intention healing thoughts their brain waves started synchronizing their heartbeat started synchronizing their the uh, flow of blood to their extremities started synchronizing you know their breathing essentially two bodies were becoming one so this is just these are you know just a few of the hundreds and hundreds of studies showing that our thoughts affect everything from single-celled organisms to other human beings at some point you start getting this interesting idea what if we were to create some experiments around intention group intention and so so you reach out and you you ask for some help start us there okay well (laughs) as i say I started thinking, how far can we take this? And I was also fascinated by um, the studies from Transcendental Meditation showing when there's a critical mass of meditators in a town, the crime rate goes down. So I was wondering in my mind, well, what happens if we have an intention to do something? Those are just meditators without any particular intended outcome. What happens if lots of people are thinking the exact same thought at the same time? Is it going to have an effect? And I figured I could do this because I had a lot of readers by then. The field was in 30 languages. And I also knew all of these scientists working in consciousness research. And I felt if I put them together, I'm going to have the biggest global laboratory in the world to test this out. So we did. And to be honest, Dodge, I didn't think it was going to work. My editor was more convinced it was going to work than I was. So I wrote this book called The Intention Experiment that was not only the science of intention, but an invitation. And periodically, I would invite my audience or an actual audience, if I were speaking somewhere, to take part in a well-controlled experiment set up by one of a number of scientists. And I wanted to vary them because I didn't want to be accused of bias. So if I use the same a scientist all the time, they could claim it. Well, it's a biased lab. So I tried to vary them. So we started out small because it had never been done before. So we started out with trying to change tiny light emissions of a leaf and trying to make seeds grow faster. And the seed experiment, well, the light experiment with the leaves was astonishing because it worked. And in fact, with that first experiment, you know, which was with an audience in London of 400, 500 people. Um, I worked with Dr. Gary Schwartz, a noted psychologist at the University of Arizona, who has a whole laboratory of consciousness research. And Gary called me up gleefully afterward because we'd sent, we had a control leaf and we had a, you know, geranium leaf and we had a real leaf. And I showed the audience, we chose a leaf Scientists didn't know which one we chose. I showed it up to the the um, uh, audience and I said, okay, I want you to send it glow instructions. Send an intention for this leaf to glow. And we had by a certain amount, you know, we put a particular amount in. And afterward, Gary called me up after I had unblinded him, the study, and he'd worked out essentially with equipment counting photon by photon that the leaf sent intention to glow, to have more photons, actually did have a significant number more. And the leaf that didn't 
almost seemed to have fewer photons than normal. It was like it had a neglect effect. <laughs> so, you know, we started moving on. We did a seed experiment and we ran that six times with four sets of seeds. And in each instance, we would randomly choose one of the sets of seeds to send intention to. The scientists would send us photos. We choose it. The first time I ran this, I was in Sydney, Australia with an audience of 700. And I let them choose the, the one we were going to send it to. They were just photos, A, B, C, D. Scientists didn't know which ones we chose. We sent intention. We told the scientists we were done, didn't tell them which seeds. They planted all four sets of seeds and measured them five days later. And lo and behold, then we unblinded the study and lo and behold, the seed sent intention grew, uh, grew significantly higher than controls. Now, think about it for a second. Um, here we are in Sydney, Australia. The seeds themselves are sitting in a lab in Tucson, Arizona, which is 8,000 miles away. And we weren't sending intention to the seeds themselves. We were sending intention to a symbol of the seeds, a photographic representation of the seeds. And yet we were having an effect. So this was mind boggling to me because suddenly I realized there is some sort of psychic internet that we are creating, that we have this extraordinary non-local effect by focusing thought. You do such a nice job just sort of pausing to consider how baffling some of these things are. And so you've just named the first one, which is we're having a non-local effect 8,000 miles away when only intending for a concept or symbol of an actual seed. And yet the living thing showed in a blinded study <laughs> significant benefit. That's very strange. But as you go on, you start to notice, okay, this keeps happening. And you start to express some dismay that that this doesn't follow any of the laws of expected physics, right? That this this is sort of violating all of the, you know, the, the general rule of thumb being that quantum particles, they do seem to behave differently from everything in the visible known universe. And in the visible universe, it still pretty much follows all Newtonian physics. Pick us up right there. I mean, just naming that, uh, you know, we're, we're already in violation of, of a whole lot of what we'd expect that way. What was amazing to me, I had already looked at um, studies showing that while scientists continue to maintain there are two kinds of science, the science of the small the quantum particle, and the science of the big everyday sticks and stones world. But there are there is more and more evidence that quantum effects occur in the world at large. For instance, the very heart of photosynthesis is a quantum effect. And these are, you know, and photosynthesis is the thing that keeps all of us alive. You know, it creates oxygen for the world. Um, we see in studies looking at quantum effects, um, the famous double slit experiment, for instance, where they see that quantum particles go through two slits at once, that they're not an actual something unless observed. They have found the same effects with some of the largest molecules in the world, including things like fullerene 
fullerene um, molecules, which are called buckyballs, because they look like, they're shaped like a Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome. Um, they have quantum effects. So we know that, we're starting to understand that, but rank and file scientists don't necessarily. But the reason it was dismaying to me was because I couldn't figure out why. Um, and we, with that seed experiment, we ran it six times in six different locations. And every single time the seed sent intention grew significantly higher than controls. And it was like, whoa, uh, size of group didn't matter. You know, we did one experiment we did, had a hundred people and another experiment we did, these are both on the seeds, um, was thousands of people over the internet. They didn't have to be in the same room. You know, there were, I was trying to figure out and quantify well, what is going on here. And that was, you know, what kept driving me on. I was also afraid of this because we kept seeing effects. You know, when we got a little tired of seeds and leaves, we moved on to water with different labs. And I worked with the late Rustam Roy the world's expert, one of the world's experts on water at Penn State University. And they did an experiment and we found, while well, we had to qualify it, that there were serious effects. Um, trying to send intention to water and use very special equipment to see if we were making any change in the structure of water. And by that they meant water molecules coalesce together in different in different designs much like leg pieces of lego and with certain structure of water the theory is that holy water like the water at lords has a different structure than ordinary tap water and so we were wanting to see whether we could make it more structured and we had an effect you know so these kinds of things kept happening and as i say it was kind of blowing my mind because it was starting to say, wow, things aren't solid and stable. That's for sure. They can be affected over any distance by people just holding on to a single thought. And these were people, most of the people in my experiments weren't even in the same room together. Most of my experiments have been done over the internet where we've shown an image we've shown an intention and we've controlled when and how that intention is sent by just controlling pages of my website but people are scattered around the globe and still we're having this effect and most of those experiments don't involve highly experienced intenders they're just people who are volunteering to help or happen to have come to the workshop that day, if I understand right. And you're not intending for 12 hours at a time. It's something like more like 10 minutes most of the time, isn't it? It's 10 minutes all the time. That's all we ever do. And the only reason we did that was because um, when we started, we did our first intention um, Dr. Gary Schwartz and I were sitting there going, well, how long should we hold this thing? And we said, well, there's probably going to be some people in our audience. That first one was in an audience in London. Uh, there'll be people in the audience who have never meditated before. So they probably won't be able to hold a thought for more than 10 minutes. 
let's do 10 minutes. That was how it was decided, but it was working. <laughs> so, not? you know, like I'm not a scientist, but like a scientist and the scientists I worked with, I realized if you built something that's successful, build on that. And so that's how the intention experiments ran. It was, we start once small, and then we move on to something a little more complex, but we keep the same, um, the same technique. We keep the same structure of the experiment. We even kept the same music dodge. The first time um, I thought to myself, just before I started the experiment, this could be hard for people to just sit in silence for 10 minutes. Maybe we ought to have some music. So I asked my husband, could you go down to the, this was a conference we were running. I said, could you go down to the bookstore and just ask our bookstore guy, um, what music does he think is good meditative music? And so so our, our bookstore guy, Mel, hands this CD to Brian. He says, here, this is Reiki Chants by Jonathan Goldman. It's really good. Try the first, try the first one. So we play the first track. And it's called Choco Ray. And only afterward do I find that it has this really interesting synchronicity. In my book, The Intention Experiment, I called the whole um, uh, the whole batch of techniques, the keys to intention, powering up, because it is all like powering up. It's it's a highly focused mind, unlike meditation, which is more no mind. So. I called it powering up and I found out afterward that Choku Rei to Reiki people, repeat practitioners of Reiki, means essentially powering up. So I thought, oh wow, there's no accidents. And it's we use that music for every intention experiment. I even now use it for power of eight groups. I mean, just as an aside, right? It it's funny to think that because you've done exactly as you should, which is to keep, you know, to introduce as few variables as possible, keep the same music, keep the same time, keep, you know, with each experiment, we don't really know a whole lot of really interesting things. Like, what if it were different music? Or what if it were 15 minutes? I mean, <laughs> it's just all these funny things. But at this point, I mean, you're just doing exactly as you should, which is to forge ahead, continuing to ask the question of what else would this affect? So then you go on to people. So I went on to people because I was pretty bored with seeds and leaves and water by about 2008. <laughs> right. We'd run a number of them. And I just, you know, was curious. And I said to Gary Schwartz, let's do something huge. Let's have a big peace intention experiment. And I thought, wow, I need more than just one scientist. I need a team here. So I got some advice from Robert John and Brenda Dunn. I got Gary involved. I got Dr. Jessica Utz involved. I spoke to the Transcendental Meditation people, some of their scientists. Um, Dr. Jessica Utz is a professor of statistics at the University of California. She was going to do the analysis. So then I had to find a target, which is hard because nobody wants to talk about war. And nobody wants to talk about the bodies in war. So I was trying to find a, you know, a place where war was going on, where I could get accurate data for before the intention and after the intention. So finally, after calling everyone, including a black um, committee inside the State Department, there is an anti-terrorist unit. There is a 24-style Jack Bauer um, 
anti-terrorist unit I discovered, and they were horrified that I'd found them. Um, but after doing all of that, I found that Sri Lanka um, had a 25-year war that had two really important things. They had an organization that was uh, gathering data and had done for some years. So they had accurate weekly and monthly data of injuries and deaths from the war, and second, and by area. And secondly, um, Sri Lanka was a place that most Westerners weren't thinking about at all, if they were thinking about them in any way at all. So that was also good because I wanted a place nobody was thinking about. You know, I didn't want people praying for an area in a sense, uh, at least the people who I was enlisting. So we could see if we had an effect. Yeah. And it was an extraordinary experience because <clears throat> the uh, we did it for eight days under the scientists said, don't just do it once. And from the TM people, I saw they were meditating for a minimum of eight days. That's why, we, again, we did that. And uh, violence during that week scared me to death because it quadrupled during the week we did the eight days. Wow. So I was pretty frightened about this, thinking, oh, my God, did, did we do this? But then it plummeted to well below what it had been before. And more importantly, that week of our intention, the uh, government, which had been essentially involved in this, you know, intractable war for a quarter of a century, not winning, not losing. The rebels had captured the whole north of the country and had blockaded it. Well, the government during that week of our intention won a number of decisive battles that turned around the whole course of the war. Within a few months, they were able to take over the and recapture the north. And a few months after that, that 25-year war was over. Now, it ended in a bloody finish, but it ended. And Sri Lanka is a totally peaceful country now. So did we do this? You know, short answer, who knows? But uh, it was certainly compelling, but interesting, but not the real interesting part of the story. And you've done this many times. I mean, just focusing for, for a moment on the effects of the intention on the intended subject, you've done this just circling, you know, a block in the middle of the most violent city in America. Or, I mean, you've done this many different ways, looking at can we bring about peace or reduced violence? And can you say some more about other successes you've had like that? Sure. We've um, we've run peace intention experiments six times, um, some very well controlled, some just looking at if we had any kind of effect. Um, and we did uh, we did a peace intention experiment, actually two for Washington, D.C., found the crime rate plummeted right afterward where property crime did not continue to go up. And we focused on the most violent area of Washington, D.C. We focused on Saint, uh, a, a neighborhood in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, which is officially the most violent place in America. And we looked at all the neighborhoods. We had really good data there because the police in American cities like Washington keep very, very good data before, you know, for years, monthly violence statistics, you know, um, uh, violent crime, property crime. So we looked at this area, fairground, and surrounding areas. Um, 
of St. Louis. And we found that for surrounding areas, St. Louis as a whole, property and violent crime went up. In fairground, only property crime went up. Violent crime, the focus of our intention, plummeted by 43% right after our intention and carried on. So we did that. We did a. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, again, did we do this? Big question, because there's so many variables when it comes to violence, when it comes to a war. You know, it could be the weather, it could be this, it could be that. But when it, it carries on, when the surrounding areas show no change, and when you've done it about six times, it starts getting interesting. And then what's even more interesting than that is the effect it started having on the participants. Yeah. And this is what I think really started to boggle your mind. For a long time, it sounds like you were getting feedback that you were just thinking was a happy accident. And then you started going, wait a minute, what is this? Okay, tell us about this part. This was the most amazing part. This is the real interesting part of the story. In 2008, I decided to survey our participants just to see how was this for them? Um, because I was fascinated by um, and mostly interested in whether or not they had been able to get onto our website because we had had some challenges in the beginning and uh, people were not able to get on or they were just talking about, you know, just general, general things. So I wanted to drill down a little bit more. So I sent them a survey and I was absolutely astonished to get back answers like this. Um, I felt like I was part of a higher network or I was sobbing uncontrollably. I had goosebumps up and down my arm. I was crying. And when I called up my sister, she was crying. Um, uh, I felt like I was in the tractor beam of Star Trek, you know, and on and on and on it. And I've had those every single time. But more interestingly was a kind of mirror effect. So on all of these peace experiments, we found people registered more peaceful events in their own lives. They wrote, when I just asked them some open-ended questions and things, they said they were getting along better with their, and this is thousands of responses. We had about 15,000 people participating in the, in the Sri Lanka experiment. And they were saying things like, you know, I'm, I've made up with my estranged relative or my my re relationship with my partner is so much better. We're getting along, you know, it's night and day with my boss and my or my coworkers. But 40 percent, and this continues every single time, about 40 percent, nearly half, say they are more in love with everybody they come in contact with. You know, these were people who are essentially hugging strangers. And it carries on in their life. I mean, a lot of people in that first experiment said they were leaving their jobs and joining the Peace Corps. I mean, something fundamentally in them had changed. And that astonished me. And I found that the same happened when we were doing a healing experiment. Um, we did one to try to heal a, a, a Gulf War veteran of post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, the experiment worked. He never seemed to get treatment again and went traveling after that. And he had been very seriously affected, so much so that, you know, he'd walk into a room and put his back against the wall and be hypervigilant. But he went on, traveled, married the love of his life, had a child, seemed to be 
okay now. But more interestingly, we got a giant flood back of people whose own health issues were healed as a result of being part of the uh, healing intention experiment. So I found that that rebound effect all the time was going on. I mean, people were getting healed as well in the peace intention experiments. Um, one person wrote, although we had a specific target, it felt like we were healing everyone everywhere at once. And that's kind of what seems to happen in these extraordinary uh, circumstances. I've participated in more than one way in these. Um, and you haven't even talked about the year-long experiment you did. We'll get to that. But I just I just participated recently um, in the one you did for for healing Washington and kind of the the divide in this country in general. Um, and it just seemed like a neat thing to do on a Sunday. And so my wife and I both sat down and we meditated and we powered up along with everybody else. And for that little bit of time, we just did as instructed. Um, and I really wasn't expecting anything to happen in my life after that. It just was there to contribute a little bit. It seemed like a lovely thing to do for an hour. You know, why not? Um, and the next day, I mean, it, I, it just made me laugh. I mean, it seemed ridiculous. Like I'd gotten a note from your publisher saying, please plug Lynn's book with the following, you know, like I couldn't have been more comically right on schedule with everything you would have predicted, which was that the one area of my life where there was the most conflict ha was happening in a new office we've set up for this healing center. I'm I've uh, been part of for 15 years. The Lotus Center has moved to a new location, and we've gotten suddenly very sideways with our landlord. It just didn't make any sense. Nicest guy in the world, and suddenly everything had gotten really tense. He was withdrawing all sorts of promises and privileges, things like even our ability to uh, decorate our own offices, I mean, our own, you know, hallways, um, and and many more than that. I mean, it, it was it was really causing me a, a lot of distress. And not 12 hours later, all of a sudden, it stopped. I got this email and repeatedly all these different subjects that have been big points of tension just shifted. I hadn't even reached out to him. It was, it just kind of dropped from the sky. Made me literally laugh out loud. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, it's very strange. Um, but thought I'd mention, you're not making this up. And it, these are not small examples from totally histrionic people who are already working with some huge um, placebo effect. These are folks who participated over lots of years, long before you wrote this book, had no reason to expect this might be coming, uh, and then they begin to experience this mirror effect you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and I have, you know, every experiment, I have thousands of responses that are saying the same thing. In fact, you know, I didn't want to write the book. I mean, I, my husband bullied me into it because I kept saying, I need more data. I need more data. And he said, at what point are you going to write about this? And he said to me, what's the most amazing thing about these experiments? And I said, well, these mirror effects, the participants themselves, that's the thing that's blowing my mind every, every time. But I felt like I had to try to understand it a little bit more. Um, and I think that has been, you know, the challenge, I can explain about 80% of it. And then there's uh, about 20% that is, you know, into the realm of miracle. <laughs> it just is in that funny realm of like, 
you, you, we, we want to call it magic because science doesn't know what to do with it yet. And that's what we've been calling magic for centuries. Um, you, you do name some, some effects where this, this mirrors other science. I mean, there's some, there's some good studies around altru altruism over decades in people's lives, having a real difference in their health. Uh, you talk some about the vagus nerve and can you pick us up there a little bit? Um, what what's going on with the vagus nerve? Well, that I started looking up when I did uh, some experiments in 2011. I decided to do a piece intention experiment with a twist. You know, I was pretty sick of that was going to be the 10th anniversary of 9/11, and I was pretty sick of just watching those buildings come tumbling down that we watch on every anniversary. And I thought maybe we could offer up some alternative, and so. I partnered with an organization that was doing a thing called One the Event, and they wanted to do something else for 9-11 too. So I set up this experiment, but I speak, you know, around the world, and one place I speak is the Middle East, and I am always the uh, guest of a person who is like the Deepak Chopra of the Middle East, Dr. Salah al-Rashid, and he has a huge following. So. Um, I asked him to ask his followers who are all from all of the Arab countries. And I would ask all our Westerners, particularly Americans, to come together. And we would just do this kind of healing intention. And we would focus on the two southern districts, uh, uh, provinces of Afghanistan, which are the, the headquarters of the Taliban and the most violent part of Afghanistan at the time it was. So we did this intention together to lower violence there. Again, it was a difficult thing trying to get information out of America. America doesn't like to give information about, you know, anything, any wars it's involved with. But I finally got hold of a NATO general who was running the whole combined forces there and got some data. And sure enough, we had a, you know, the stats show that after our intention, there was an extraordinary drop in violence in just those two provinces, more than anywhere else. Did we do this? Who knows? But more interesting was what happened between the Arabs and Americans. So I had all of the usual things of people feeling incredible things, but I put my survey both in, we translated it into Arabic as well as English. So we had both sides, and I also had instant messenger. I was doing broadcasts about it. We had both sides on instant messenger and my Facebook pages. And we noticed in, in those areas, the Americans and the Arabs were starting to write to each other. They were starting to say things like, you're my brother from the other side. Your God is my God. You know, I love you. Um you know, I, this is healing for me, being an American, talking to Arabs. I mean, they were befriending each other and they were forgiving each other. So I started to try to figure out why. And I it led me to work of uh, by Dacker Keltner, who is a psychologist at the University of California at Berkeley. And he did a fantastic study um, taking two groups of students and showing one pictures of the world's victims, you know, starving children, things like that. The other group were shown pictures of, you know, designed to elicit pride, like pictures of other students at Berkeley, the Berkeley campus, 
uh, Berkeley's football team beating its rivals, Stanford University. And afterward, he showed them other photos of disparate groups of people. Group one, who had seen the world's victims, identified with people not like them. If they were Republican, Democrats, the homeless, prisoners, people not like them, they, they felt very connected to. Whereas the group who had just seen photos designed to elicit pride in themselves and who they are, tended to feel most like the people who were just like them. You know, other students, but also doctors, lawyers, accountants, the people they would become. And so he explained it thus. You know, when we do something compassionate, it activates the vagus nerve, the longest nerve in our body, which starts at the neck and winds itself through all of the major organs of the body. Also, it's involved in the release of oxytocin, the love hormone, as it's called, um, which we, you know, excrete when we are, you know, taking care of our children. So this is also this nerve is essentially like the love nerve. It helps us become more compassionate, but most of all, it helps us connect to people not like us. So I got from all of that, that these peace intention experiments where people altruistically contribute and are part of it, um, moves us out of the self, particularly if we are have disparate groups doing this together, warring enemies, and it helps the heart to leap across the fence. And when I did this again in 2017, I had special equipment enabling me to put cameras in eight different Arab cities in conference rooms in eight different Arab locations in all of the Gulf states. And the ninth one was put in an auditorium filled with Israeli Jews. And we did an intention to lower violence in Jerusalem. And once again, the same thing happened. Um, the Jews were sending love to the Arabs. The Arabs were saying, your God is my God. It was a love fest. It was amazing. Everybody was crying and seeing, because with the equipment, they could see each other too. You know, it was uh, a bit like, you know, whenever somebody would speak, it would flash on them and all of the groups could see. And it was it was extraordinary. So I, you know, I realized that maybe this is a mechanism to heal polarization, to heal polarized communities and societies. I'm thinking about a lovely quote in your book. You write, as my husband once wrote, Jean-Paul Sartre was mistaken. Hell is not other people. Hell is thinking there are other people. Oh, absolutely. A absolutely. And that was the other thing that I think really came about not only with the power uh, with the intention experiment, but the power of eight groups, which was an, really an accident. Uh, 2008, I wanted to try to scale down the intention experiment to uh, a workshop setting. And I didn't know what to do. And I just said to my husband one night, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll put people in groups of eight or so and have them send healing intention to someone with a health challenge in that group. And he, being a great headline writer, said, yeah, I love it. The power of eight. And that's what we did. And after they did that, when I had people come back the next day and report on their experience, all of the recipients, you know, said extraordinary things. I thought it was going to be a very simple, mild effect, like, 
you know, getting your back massaged. But no, they said things like, you know, I have migraines every day of my life and my head's clear today. Um, I have, I walk with a terrible limp because I've bad arthritis in my knee and I walk normally today, or I have cataracts and I'm 80% better. So suddenly I recognized that there was some healing element to this uh, little groups. And I started experimenting with that. And the first time I decided to, I would do it in my workshops over and over again. And then I wanted to see what would happen if I put people in groups for a whole year. And that was 2015. And you participated. <laughs> I did. I saw something come across, I don't know, maybe a social media ad or something, inviting people to participate in a year-long experiment. And I'd loved your book. And I thought, shoot, I'm signing up for that for sure. <laughs> and was lucky enough to be among your, what was it, 115, 20 something subjects around the world? I can't remember. We had 250 people signed up. But of the 150, there were 150 of them who met regularly um, every week for the entire year. They met as much as they could. Um, some of the others stopped meeting regularly. But of the ones who were very diligent about meeting, uh, pretty much 100% of them had extraordinary, amazing transformations, whether it was in their health, their career, their relationships, their finances, even their life's purpose. And that was my experience, too. It was it was a very, very interesting year. Not only did I make just incredible friends that I've stayed in touch with for years since we've, we went for years and years regularly, um, lost a bunch of weight. Um, my trainer at the time kept saying, this is the weirdest thing. It's like you're aging backward. You're working out once a week and you're making progress that doesn't make any sense at all. And I just would laugh. I didn't, I didn't even put it together with the intention experiment. I mean, the power of aid group, because I didn't know that's what the point was. I just, I didn't know what we were doing. There wasn't a, you know, a, a here's what we're thinking you're going to find. You just followed us for a year and I would write in and, you know, answer questions. Um, but sure enough, after a year looking back, all kinds of things had moved. Um, changes in my career. I mean, it was it was a really interesting experience, I have to say. I would recommend that highly to anybody out there, whether you put one together yourself or you get on the next, you know, train with Lynn. Try this. It's really neat. It was, and it continues to do the same, Dodge. I mean, it's amazing watching people because I still monitor people and you know we have our the master class that just finished in January I have a new one that's that's just started we kick off in the beginning of every February and it runs for a whole year and now it's you know it's very systematized um but I found last last year we had amazing stories we had a one woman who was sugar addicted so badly that she would get up in the middle of the night and binge and then be tired and sleep all morning and not get up to the afternoon. It was affecting her marriage. She was overweight, the whole thing. She's off sugar. She's lost weight. She's meditating. She's doing exercise. Her relationship with her husband is fabulous. She says, this is probably the best time of my life. We had a woman who wanted to open her heart. And suddenly she gets a call from a boyfriend from 33 years ago, and they're now madly in love again. It's so cute. 
we had, you know, people finding their dream house. We had people finding, you know, suddenly getting the money they needed, um, health, loads of health things. Somebody overcame chronic fatigue. Somebody else got off of antidepressants. You know, the list goes on and on. Cancer, a couple of cancers resolved. It was just, it is amazing to me. So I keep saying, yes, altruism, big piece, because Seven-eighths of the time, essentially, you're intending for someone else. You know, it's not you. It's you're giving, not receiving. It's a group effect. You know, the collective effervescence, as the psychologist Emile Durkheim called it, groups. Um, it's intention, of course. But then there's an X factor. I think a lot of it has to do with oneness. You know, we've done a lot mm -hmm. of brainwave studies on, on power beat groups now working with neuroscientists. And we find that very quickly, the parts of the brain that help us feel separate, that help us navigate through space, like the parietal lobes, which sit at the top of the back of the head, they're turned way down. The parts of the brain in the right frontal lobes involved in doubt, negativity, worry, they're dialed way down, as are other portions. And what they resemble Almost identically are brainwave studies done on Sufi masters during chanting or Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer. These are people in a state of ecstatic oneness. And here's the piece uh, I can't understand. I hear that all the time. People feel like they're in a mystical altered state. They describe all of the elements of a mystical altered state described by people like the late Abraham Maslow who was fascinated by peak experiences, or the late astronaut Edgar Mitchell talked about his epiphany coming back from the moon. But the other thing they say are things like this. Uh, there was a physical power bank group of one woman who had such bad knee. She was due to have surgery. And after one power bank group, she was able to do a deep squat. I saw her, she was in my audience was able to cancel her surgery. I mean, her knee couldn't, she couldn't even stand on that knee. But she said during this power of eight group, her friends were in a, their group was in a circle holding hands, but she felt warm mitts surrounding her knee. Other people have said they've seen light beings behind a chair, each chair, like they were the magnifiers. And they constantly talk about something otherworldly. So I don't know where to go with that one. The journalist, the skeptic in me says, I don't know, is this an altered state or is that the state that we finally just access, the real state? It's a really interesting question. I mean, you do a nice job just touching on some of the science that shows rather incredibly that the brain of somebody who's doing this for 10 minutes is activated and interestingly deactivated or downregulated in all the same areas that an advanced Buddhist monk would be uh, when they reach that ecstatic state of oneness. The brain goes there only without the decades and decades of experience leading somebody to be prepared for that. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And yet, much as you can touch on the brain science, 
it doesn't quite get you to that piece right there that I can see you're really wrestling with. Like, so how do I investigate or write about this? Has this gone past the reach of, you know, a journalist with her feet still on the ground? Have I just gone so much off into the woo-woo that I've just, I, I can't write it yet? Will your husband bully you into the next one and you'll figure out how? I don't know. <laughs> oh, he will. He will not oh, let he you go will. Ahead. No, exactly. What is this oneness is the big question. What is this? You know, I just have to ask Lynn, like, what effect is this having on you? It's really interesting. I feel like um, I've been gifted this. I've been asked to be a kind of gate. Keeper. I do feel like, uh, and I never know why, why me? Because I'm not a healer. And that's what happened to me for a number of years. It was kind of why me? And I was denying it. Or I was saying, oh, yeah, there's more people here he- healing, but it's probably a placebo effect. And then I started seeing senders getting healed too. And I thought, no, I've never said anything about senders being healed. And these guys are getting healed too. There's something more here. And so I like to also say I got hijacked because um, somebody somewhere just said, you got to do this. And so I do feel I do have to do this. I mean, this is a, a random discovery I made that is a really important piece of of the extraordinary thing we are. That we're, you know, we're born with this. This isn't something I've invented. I'm not a guru, but we're born with this. And we, that gets denied us as we grow. You know, children know this. They know how miraculous they are. But then they get talked out of that by teachers, possibly parents, certainly science. And then we start not believing it. And we... You know, we start thinking about just our limitation that we're just, you know, chemistry and electrical signaling. And then we we give up and we just feel these are our limits. Well, I'm starting to see that more and more this is the whole central piece to our uh, capacity as a human being, our thought. It's all about it. I just read a study today, Dodge, that was the first amazing meta-analysis, which is a review, major review of studies, 20 studies on the placebo effect. And what they discovered, these are whole brain studies, they have found that taking a sugar pill, you know, unbeknownst to them, it's a sugar pill. Nevertheless, they thought it was, it was a real pill, activated all of the, the whole pain mechanism in the body. These are people all, um, who were al- allowed the researchers to create, you know, evoked pain. They hurt them somehow with a stimulus. And then they took this painkiller. And the every mechanism in the brain involved with from sensory stimuli to uh, feeling the ouch to trying to figure out what to do about the ouch all of that, you know, just the pinch, the ouch, and what to do about it, all of the brain mechanisms involved in that were activated. These were um, activated by the pinch, of course, and then turned off by the dummy pain mechanism. So what we're really saying is 
that, you know, pain starts and ends with a thought. Illness starts and ends with a thought. And they found, I mean, other scientists like uh, Harvard, in Harvard, they studied the placebo effect a lot. And they found that the real key element as to whether or not a placebo will work or not is, is the doctor. Or a drug will work or not is the, is the doctor. Is his or her healing words, his or her thoughts. I now give a course called Become a Better Healer with the Power of Eight. because it's And it's just for practitioners because their languaging is oftentimes going to determine whether or not their patients get well. Not even their languaging, their thoughts. So, you know, this Harvard's done a study showing <laughs> they gave patients with bad, bad carpal t- tunnel syndrome either a drug, or acupuncture. Now, one-third of the people had terrible reactions to these, either one, so bad they couldn't get out of bed. But most of them were much, much better. And guess what? Both the drug and acupuncture were both placebos. It was a sham acupuncture where they their skin wasn't even punctured. They were retracting needles. And with the pill, it was cornstarch. And yet, they reacted good or bad depending on their thoughts. So I know, amazing. So I re- I recognize that, you know, this is a power that belongs to all of us. And my job is just to make sure it doesn't get in the wrong hands. You know, I'm the gatekeeper, I guess. Do you participate in a group of some kind yourself? Like, do you get to do this? I have two groups, and I'll tell you how good they were and how good the placebo effect was. Um, I was born with um, with a hip dysplasia on both sides. It runs in my family. And I managed to dodge that um, bullet <laughs> for many, many years with yoga and a variety of things until about four years ago. Um, just after the year you were with me, I just suddenly started limping. And that limp got worse and worse and worse to the point where uh, about a little more than a year ago, I was having to walk with sticks. And that turned into, Mm. that started turning into crutches. So I, in the meantime, tried every alternative thing, nothing, including stem cell stuff, nothing worked. So I finally decided I really have to go into surgery. I have to get these hips replaced. They were some of the worst my surgeon had ever seen. So I really did not want to do this. I really didn't want to do this. So I go into the hospital. I pick the country's best surgeon, go into the hospital. I'm crying on my husband's shoulder right before the surgery. And then I think, no, I got to do something else with this. I have to, and my, my group, my group had done a lot of intention for this too the, 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 that week. So I said, okay, I have to turn this around with my thoughts. I have to think this is going to be the best experience. I'm going to love this hospital stay. I'm going to love this whole thing. So I, on my crutches, I go to the operating room myself and I say hi to the anesthetist and I smile and we're yakking and we're chatting and I try to, you know, I tell them exactly what I want to have for it. And I smile. I was in the hospital for eight days 
And I smile through the whole thing to the nurses and the food and the everything. It was a pretty nice hospital, I have to say, too. I had no pain. I swear to you. I had two. I had a double hip replacement. I had no pain. I took Tylenol for a week. That was it. No opiates. No, not even non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. I had no pain. So that goes back to that placebo effect of the thought being the very key element of it. And so that really convinced me. And our Power of Eight group, we had a guy with stage four cancer, one of our friends, and he's now pretty much cured um, stage four prostate cancer. We have another woman who's doing amazingly. She's got cancer. And our group has been nicknamed Who's Got What? (laughs) Because we come in and is, you know, we started doing a healing. It's a whole hour every week. Wow. That's really fun. I'm calling all my buddies again. I'm going to get us, get us going. We've been, we've all gotten a little busy and distracted, but I think we got to get back to doing this regularly. It's just such a treat. Yeah, it is. Wow. It is. Well, I mean, as you know, and I think listeners know if, unless they're new to this show, our Our project here is to get really interested in how change comes about when it's not just a effort-driven, will-driven, you know, goal. Um, And to look at all the paradoxical effects that also contribute to huge and profound and lasting change. And I can't imagine a more dramatic example of it than this conversation right here, where, sure enough, paradoxically... uh, Thoughts are things, it turns out, (laughs) and even stranger, the more you give away the very thing you long for, the more likely you are to get it. And it's not just anecdotal. There is years now of research that you've been sitting right in the front row of, often driving the bus for, that demonstrates this is is real. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is real, and that should give us all hope that we're far grander than we've been told. We have far more Mm. control than we thought over our lives and that it is possible to live. You know, we can't stop ourselves from having bad things happen, but we can minimize them. That I'm sure about. I'm not one of those people who says, you know, if bad things happen to you, it's totally your fault. Um, You know, we can get run. I could walk out this door and get run over by a bus. But, um, and it's not necessarily my fault, but I can control how I react to that. And I can also control many things in my life. And I hope that's what this work is going to do. And that, you know, that kind of control and those miracles can happen to everyone. Amen. Well, everybody out there, um, the book, The Power of Eight, is can be bought anywhere you buy your books, and it's really worth the read. It's it's quite a page-turner of a story about how all this unfolds, as Lynn has shared with us today, and it ends with a nice piece about, here's how to create your own Power of Eight group, you have some suggestions for experiments and some ways to work together, and you're going to... Um, finish our uh, talk today by teaching us a little bit about how you suggest people power up and how they might apply intention work in their own lives. Absolutely. And um, what I'm going to tell you is just the cliff notes here, because um, now I call them 13 keys to intention mastery. 
And there are a lot of things about the right time, the right place, et cetera, et cetera. But the basics of them are get yourself a group. And it doesn't have to be eight. It'll work with five. It can work with 12. Um, come up with a common intention. Be specific. It's no good saying, I want to be rich or I want world peace or any of those nebulous things. They don't work. Every time we've been too general with an intention experiment, it hasn't worked. So tell the universe exactly what you want. If you need $2,300.50, ask for that. Um, so specify exactly what you want. Everybody holds the intention together. You bring it down to your heart. You send it out after and take a few deep breaths together before you do any of this so that you're in sync a bit. You know, your brainwaves are operating essentially in sync and um, hold it for 10 minutes and receiver just opens up his heart to receive and then compare notes afterward. And as I say, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's a great way to get you started. And as Dodge says, uh, the basics of it are in my book, The Power of Eight. Um, and also, um, if you want to find out more, I do a lot of um, free live events on my Facebook page, Lynn McTaggart 2011. I have courses of every variety. I'm doing more on the new science. I do a year-long master class of which Dodge was one of the first people. And I do um, basic courses, intention essentials, and we're and advanced courses about intention backward and forward in time and healing the past and designing the future and much, much more. So check me out on lynnmctaggart.com. <laughs> Please do, everybody. Thank you, Lynn. This was really such a joy. It was really fun for me to take care and say hi to your group for me. Hey, everybody, if you'd like to deepen that experience, you may go to the show notes where you're going to find uh, 16 steps that give you an idea of how to create your own power of eight circle. And from there, you'll also find links to go further if you'd like. Thanks, everyone, for listening.